Mark chapter number 9. The title of the message this morning is, it's really a statement that is this, and the greatest is, and then the following the answer is that. You've heard that statement made, and the greatest is, and that's what we're going to look at this morning out of the passage to see exactly who is the greatest, and there are a lot of folks that claim their greatness and claim that the greatest this, the, the greatest ball player, the greatest singer, the greatest general, the greatest army leader, the greatest president, that we hear that all of our lives. So who is the greatest out of all of these things? Well, the Bible certainly gives us some direction and consideration in this matter. Mark chapter number 9, let's begin reading in verse number 30, and we'll read Uh, Seven verses. They departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. And he taught his disciples and said unto them. The son of man is delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him. And after that he is killed. He shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying. And were afraid to ask him. You ever been afraid to ask Jesus something? Why in the world would we be afraid to ask Jesus? Is there something in your life, something in your heart that you are afraid to come to Jesus? I remember there were times in my life as a young person being afraid to ask my parents a particular thing. Um, but why would we be afraid to ask Jesus something? Jesus begins telling them about his death, burial, and resurrection. And they didn't understand it, but the Bible says they were afraid to ask him. I think that's very interesting. Verse number 33, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What is it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, and receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, could be added there, but not me only, but him that sent me. To receive Jesus Christ, Jesus said, you're not only receiving me, but you're receiving God the Father. You're receiving all of heaven, all that heaven is. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Wonderful passage of scripture. Who is the greatest? And Jesus begins to explain this to us this morning. By this time in our passage as we've been working our way through the portion of this portion of Scripture in Mark's Gospel, when de- detailing the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, Jesus now he is now beginning to move southward. He's been uh, in working in the the northern region. If you uh, know a little bit of your uh, Bible history or even history today, and uh, the understanding of the, the map of Israel, you understand that there's, it's a very narrow land, and it's a, uh, the land is long, but it's narrow, and up in the upper part is the, the Sea of Galilee, and you have the Galilean area all around that, and in that area there are a number of towns and cities, and in the lower part you have Jerusalem, you have Bethlehem, and you have the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River runs uh, north to south between those two. 
And Jesus had spent a great part and a great portion of his ministry in the northern part around the Sea of Galilee. The Galilean area includes the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up as a child. Cana, Tiberias, Gennesaret, and Capernaum. Capernaum had become the base of operations, uh, so to speak, for much of Jesus' ministry in that northern section in the area around the Sea of Galilee and the Galilean area there. These would be, as we move into these passages, these would be some of the very last days of Jesus' ministry up in this area. He'd spent uh, quite a bit of time, but now Jesus is beginning to move south. So these are literally some of the last days. Uh, He would not be ministering up into these areas again. And now as we move later on in next week or possibly in a couple weeks ahead, as we get into chapter 10, we see that Jesus actually moves southward toward Jerusalem. This is where he's heading to. Jerusalem as we know, would be his final destination in his earthly ministry. It all began some 33 years prior in a manger in Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem. It all began there, and that's where he came as a babe in a manger. Joseph and Mary, after he was born, uh, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were led by God into Egypt for a time until King Herod had died. If you remember, King Herod had taken and he had sought to kill all the children, all the babies. The Lord, in a dream, had led Joseph to go into Egypt and to flee there until such a time that King Herod was no longer there. But after he had died, uh, the Lord led them back. And there, we mentioned, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth became his childhood home. And the Bible says that Jesus grew there and he waxed strong in spirit and he was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Wouldn't it have been amazing to see the... The, the early life of Jesus. And we have a little bit of insight into that. But I can only imagine what an interesting uh, childhood Jesus had there. At the age of 30, uh, Jesus would, from Nazareth, would now travel southward in, towards the, uh, in the area of the Jordan River. Which would be, again, south. And he would be baptized by John the Baptist. And he would spend... 40 days in the Jordanian wilderness, and there he'd be tempted by Satan. And again, that was in the southern region. And from there, uh, after this baptism, he would again go north, and the majority of his ministry would be around the Sea of Galilee again, and he'd be up in that area, going from town to town, preaching and healing and casting out devils, and feeding the multitudes, and proving himself to be the Messiah every step along the way. But here in our text, we're just a few short months. Jesus is just a few short months from the cross. His earthly ministry is coming to a close, and he's making his way south once again, in one final place. Ministry in Galilee was again coming to that Closure and Jesus is is he's working his way southward again to his final destination, which would be Jerusalem and ultimately be to the cross. And as our Lord travels with his disciples, as he has begun earlier, he continues to teach them and prepare them 
for the cross. Not only prepare them for the cross, but uh, after the cross, after the ascension. He was beginning to teach and prepare them for the time that he would no longer be with them. The time when they would be the early church fathers. They would be the ones that would establish the early church and write much of the New Testament. And he was preparing, he was just teaching them. He was literally pouring his life into these disciples. And we come to verse number, uh, uh, as he's traveling with them, he comes to verse number, let's see, 31. And he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. As Jesus is traveling, he mentions again for the second time about his death his burial, and his resurrection. If you remember in chapter 8 in verse number 31, it's for the first time he mentions it, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He mentions it out of chapter number 8 in verse number 31, and that's where Peter steps up on his pedestal and says, Forbid it, Lord. No, this will never happen to you. And Jesus puts him in his rightful place. Certainly Peter didn't understand. And now as Jesus continues to walk with his disciples, he mentions the very same topic once again. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. He brings it up. He says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man. They've just recognized that he is God. He's the Messiah. The Son of Man, God is going to be delivered in the hands of men. And those men shall kill him. And after he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now we have to understand that in the minds of the disciples, they didn't get it all yet. And they really wouldn't get it all, even up into the time of the resurrection. But it began to click with them. But this is the reason why he came. As he's now moving his way south is he would end up in Jerusalem and finally to the cross. This is the reason for his coming. The healing miracles, as great and as wondrous as all of these were, the healing was not the reason why he came. The feeding of the thousands, as great and as marvelous as all of these things were, this, these, these feedings were not the reason why he came. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. All of us would say, wow, what a wonderful, what an amazing miracle this is. The raising of Lazarus from the dead after you've been dead so long. Lord, it's too late. He stinketh by now. But he comes up out of the grave and he walks, comes forth. Loose him, Jesus says. An amazing miracle. But this is not the reason why he came. Jesus came to die. He came to die for lost, hell-bound, sinful men. He came to die for me. And he came to die for you. He was delivered. He tells them that he'll be delivered into the hands of men. Understand, Jesus was delivered from heaven as a babe in a manger so that we could be delivered from our sin. He was delivered from heaven, delivered into the hands of Men who would mock him, who would beat him, who would spit in his face, who would scream out literally time and time again, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. He was delivered so that the Roman soldiers would then uh, take him and 
lay him upon a cross, plait a crown of thorns upon his head, and drive nails into his hands and his feet. He was delivered, and he was crucified. He was delivered to be crucified. He was delivered to die for sin so that you and me might be delivered from our sin. That's why he came. John 12 and 27. Jesus, while in the garden, we'll see as we get to this point, as he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He says, Should I say such a thing? Should this come from my lips? Father, save me from this hour. He says, of course not. But for this cause came I to this hour. God, save me? No, for this reason I came. 1 John 4 and 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Many today, they hear of Jesus, would say that Jesus is a good man. Many would teach that, yes, he's a good man. He's a prophet, some would even say. Some say that he was a martyr and he died for a good cause. But he's much, much, much more than any of this. Much more than any of this. He's God in human flesh come to die for sinful mankind. Paul said, I'm the chief of all those sinners. You know, Paul saw himself in that condition, but let me just say here, no, I'm chief of that. Because he died for me. He died for you, and he died in our place. He's the God in human flesh who's come to die for wicked, sinful men such as me. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus Tells his disciples of the future that's ahead. As he's teaching them the future that's ahead. What lies next? The death, the burial, the resurrection. This is the reason why he came. But notice verse number 32. We see the failure to understand. The future that's ahead. The failure to understand. But they understood not that saying. And were afraid to ask him. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand. They they don't understand what Jesus is talking about here. How could the Son of Man, how could the Son of God die? They were looking for that Jewish kingdom to be established here on earth. How could, why would their king die? Why would he need to die? Why would he die and rise again? They didn't get it. They couldn't see it. It's nearly as seems as though to me, now the second time in, Jesus is beginning to teach. It's nearly as though they have chosen to almost ignore it. Jesus is telling me he's going to the cross. They don't get it. 
uh, it seems like they're ignoring what Jesus is saying to them. Let me just add here and let me just add this point that doesn't seem like a whole lot's changed today. The world still doesn't get it. They still don't get it. They still don't understand it. They don't know the reason why Jesus came. They don't know the reason why he came and why he died. If they do know it and if the world does know it, they choose to ignore it. If the world around us truly does know it and they understand it and they see it, then why is it that our church houses and the places where the gospel is proclaimed and the word of God is preached, why aren't we filled to capacity? Every time we meet. Why is the church the the prominent place in our land? Uh, Not the White House or not the President's House or the Congress or the Supreme Court. But why isn't the church the place where people come? For wisdom, for instruction, for salvation. Maybe they know it, but maybe they don't. And I dare say many do not. Many around the world do not. And that's why we send missionaries And that's why we seek to plant churches, gospel-preaching churches all around the world. But here in America, maybe they've heard it. Maybe they know it, but they've chosen to ignore it. Chosen to ignore it. Most don't believe it. Many even deny that it even happened. More and more today, it seems to me, is people are ashamed of it. People are ashamed Of the name Jesus. Let's do away with the name of Jesus. Let's cover it up. Let's purge it out. Let's not mention it any longer. It's too divisive. These Bible preaching. Bible believing fundamentalists. Who claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They're too radical. They're too racist. They're too narrow, they're too narrow-minded, too intolerant. So much so that we can't tolerate them. Quite an interesting thought that is. They're too intolerant so we can't tolerate them. We need to close their churches. We need to outlaw their brand of preaching. And let me say that it's taking place all across America today. It's taking place. It's taking place in Canada. Churches are being closed and pastors are being imprisoned. I do believe that it seems to me, and I do not seek to be political this morning, but I believe that so much has been propagated in the name of a pandemic that's been used to shut down places of worship. Intolerable. A man can deny it, a man can ignore it, he can try to do away with it, but the fact remains that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man cometh to the Father but by me. The fact remains that Jesus said to a very religious man by the name of Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You must be born again. You talk to people about being born again. And they talk to you about everything religious. And talk to you about all kinds of religion. 
But Jesus said, ye must be born again. And I am the only way that makes him exclusive. That makes this Bible the only truth. It doesn't make it a truth, but it makes it the truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you're going to go to God's heaven. You have to go to God's heaven God's way. You'll not be able to come up with your own way. You'll not be able to come up with another way. Or whatever they're saying. Or whatever they said. But you have to go this way. What God has said. You can deny it. But it doesn't change the facts. We see the future that lies ahead. We see the failure to understand. But notice thirdly out of verses 33 and 34. The desire for position. The desire for position. And he came to Capernaum. And being in the house he asked them. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Here we see the desire for position. They didn't get it. They didn't understand why Jesus had come. And they're still looking and thinking towards this earthly kingdom. Again, mentioned it numbers of times. And we see in the passage again, Jesus asks a question. And Jesus never asks a question so that he might learn something. He asks the question so that we might learn something. He asks it of his disciples. Not so that he might know what they're saying, but that they might realize what they're saying. And they might understand, that they might look inward and understand what's going on in their hearts. There's a dispute among them. There's a dispute among them as to who should be the greatest when the kingdom is set up. They're positioning themselves, jockeying for positions as to who is to be the most important. Who will be the most important and who deserves the highest ranking in greatness in God's kingdom. Can't you see them? They're walking along. One saying, well, I'm more important to him than you are. Maybe I've been more help to him than you've been. My skill set is, is better than yours. It'll come in handy there in the kingdom. I'm a little bit better at this than you are. Can't you see Judas? Maybe Judas speaks up among the crowd. And he says, well, look, boys, I'm holding the bag. I'll be the greatest. Note when Jesus asked the question, what are you talking about? They answered not a word. They didn't have to because Jesus already knew. And Jesus knows what goes on in our hearts and in our thinking. Jesus already knew. And they were ashamed about it. They already knew as well. They were ashamed about it. What's happening here is that Jesus exposes their pride. He's exposing their pride. But before we get too critical and harsh on the disciples as they're walking away. Let's be careful because this pride thing is a tendency to rear its head in our lives as well. Doesn't it? On the job, someone else gets the promotion. Someone else gets the raise. We may not say it audibly. Maybe we do, but maybe we think in our mind, I should have gotten that job. I was better at that than they are. I've been here longer than they have. I deserve a little respect. Look how long I've been here. 
or I'm better looking, more educated, whatever it is. Pride gets into all of us if we're not careful. What about me? What about my position? Look who I am. Pride gets into all of us if we're not careful. Preachers can get prideful. How come I don't have a bigger church? How come I don't have a better situation? Who should be the greatest? Well, when we ask the question in our minds, we automatically think as we look around us, well, I should be. We may not audibly say it, but we certainly have it within our hearts. Jesus is exposing their desire for position. He's exposing the pride that has welled up within them. Proverbs 16 and 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Anytime you ever see a church that's in disarray, that's in a church that's going through times of disunity. Anytime you see situations like that or a home that's being broken up, there's situations like that, mark it down. It always begins somewhere with an area of pride. I deserve better. But look at me. What about me? What about my position? Proverbs 13 and 10. Only by pride cometh contention. Proverbs 6 and 17. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination in him. And you know what he lists first along the list? A proud look. A proud look. Jesus says, men, you need to check your pride here. We were walking along the way. We were disputing among ourselves who's to be the greatest in the kingdom. Men, you need to check your pride. And I believe maybe God's saying to some of us this morning. And he says to me this morning, you need to check your pride. you got a pride problem. You need to check it. They had a desire for position. Who's first? And Jesus points out that pride in his response. We see a desire for position. But notice in verse number 35, Jesus responses, responds to their pride. Out of verse number 35, we see a demand for submission. They had a desire for position, but Jesus turns it around. He says there's a demand for submission. Verse number 35, and he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first... The same shall be last of all and servant of all. The key to being the greatest is to be the last. Seems seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? At least in the eyes of the world today. The one that's the greatest is the one to be the last. But what about me? What about Who I am. What about my position? The one who is to be the greatest is to be the last, he says. And Jesus, uh, the greatest of all, the greatest that ever walked upon this earth. He's God. He's perfect. He's righteous and he's holy. And he's talking about going to a cross and dying for sinful men. He truly is the greatest. But he says the one that's the greatest is to be the last. Demand for submission. The key to being the greatest is to be the last. The way to be at the top is to be the least. It's an ancient stories that I read that says that in ancient China, it was very fashionable for wealthy men 
to grow their fingernails so long that their hands were unusable for basic tasks. Maybe you see, have seen some of these pictures. And he did this. Those wealthy individuals, they did this to demonstrate that they didn't have to do anything for themselves. Their servants did it all. Their hands were rendered worthless. And this was a fashionable thing that says, this is just to say that I don't have to do anything for myself. All my servants do it all. Jesus is saying that greatness is not measured by how many are serving us, but how many we are serving. How many we are serving. I come to church sometimes with the mindset that says, how many will serve me? How many will do for me? And yet God says that I ought to come to the house of God. That my heart ought to be that when I come and I live my life day in and day out for the glory of God. That my heart ought to be who can I serve? How can I be a servant of someone else? Not to be the greatest. But to be the servant of all. To be like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not how many serving me, but how many I may serve. Remember, this is the key of our entire study in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, in verse number 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. We see a desire for for position, a demand for submission, and Number next, notice with me a display of greatness. A display of greatness, verses 36 and 37. He took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Display of greatness. Listen to Matthew's account. You may want to turn there. Matthew's account in Matthew 18. The same account of the passage. Matthew's account in Matthew 18 verses 2 through 5. We'll read verse number 1 down through 5. Matthew 18. And it came to pass the disciples... Uh, uh, excuse me, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, he, and Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says here out of this passage, out of verse number 3, except you be converted. In the response to who's the greatest, Jesus responds, except you be converted. First of all, you're not going to get to heaven until you've been converted. Except you be converted. Who's the greatest? In order to get to heaven, we'll have to be converted. The word converted simply means turned, changed. Jesus says, if you've not been changed, if there's been no turning in your life, except you be converted. 
the path to greatness in God's kingdom begins with conversion. It begins with a changed life. It begins with new birth. It begins with salvation. Recognizing that I cannot save myself. Nothing I can do. But all in what Jesus has done for us. And accepting Him and Him alone. It's not Him plus some of my good works. It's not Him plus some of my religion. But it's Him and Him alone. The path to greatness in God's kingdom begins with conversion. In fact, conversion is the door that allows you to enter into the kingdom. Change life. We don't use the word converts anymore. We've given that one over to the other crowd. Converts. Converts. Listen, we're to be converts. From an old way of life to a new way of life. Out of sin and into righteousness. An old way of living to a new way of living. An old way of unfaithfulness to a new way of faithfulness. An old way of people serving me to a new way of me serving God and through people. The fact of conversion. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. Listen up, listen up. I say unto you, you must be born again. There must be that change of mind, that change of heart, that change of action, and that change of direction. It leads to a change of destination. You say, how do I do that? Jesus does that in you. You simply trust Him to do the work. You simply, you and I simply submit to Him to do the work. Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Question, question this morning. When were you converted? When were you converted? When were you born again? When did you enter in To the family of God. Some people say, well, I'm a child of God. You got into this earth and got here on planet earth by being born. You'll got to get to heaven by being born again. You got here the first time through your mother's womb. You have to get to heaven through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When were you converted? When did the change take place? When did you change take place in your life? As Jesus, can you imagine the picture? Jesus calls a little child and he picks him up in his arms. And he's holding the child in his arms. He says there must be a change in your life. Become as little children. He's not saying be childish. We've got too many childish Christians. We've got too many childish people. He's not saying become childish. He's saying become childlike. What does childlike look like? What does it look like to be childlike? We all know what childishness looks like, don't we? What does it mean? What's Jesus saying here when he says you must be childlike? Chapter 18, verse number 4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. You see, it looks like humility. It's humility in my life. Brokenness even over my sin. While the world tweets and posts and cries out, look at my greatness. Jesus says, no, it's not your greatness. It's not your greatness at all. 
Your greatness is only be found as you take up your cross daily and follow me. He says, become as a little child. What's that look like? As adults, we become hardened. We become hard-hearted. Nothing seems to move us anymore. Nothing seems to stir us from within. We don't get passionate about the things of God anymore. Nothing moves us. A child, on the other hand, is tender-hearted. Tender-hearted to the things of God. Compassionate about others. As adults, we become hardened. As children, we're tender-hearted. As adults, we become unteachable. Don't tell me I know how to do that. Don't tell me uh, where I'm wrong. Don't tell me that I've sinned. Don't tell me my lifestyle is ungodly and immoral. Don't tell me that. I know where I am and I know all about where I am. We say we're unteachable. We don't say that, but that is the, the expression that comes out. But as a child, a child is teachable. They don't know, but they want to know. They don't understand, but they want to understand. They're teachable. Oh, let me just say it again. We need some Sunday school teachers who will teach some children how to live godly. And that's you. Would you be a Sunday school teacher and say, I'll teach a group of young kids to love the Lord. We become unteachable, but they're teachable. As adults, we are independent. We don't need anybody to care for us. But think about a child. A child is completely dependent. They rely upon others to care for them. Except you become as a little child. Except we understand our sin and become humbled about it. And understand what Jesus did for us. Until we become teachable in the word of God. Allowing the Bible to get into us and, and the word of God to live through us. Until we stop being independent. I don't need God. I don't need church. I don't need God's way in my life. I've got my own way. Until we stop being independent. And we start being dependent upon Jesus Christ. As the only way. For life. And for eternity. Mark 9 and 36. We go back to our text. 36 and 37. He took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms. He said unto them. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name. Receiveth me. And whosoever shall receiveth. Uh, whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. The world says greatness is found in how much you hold. But Jesus says greatness is found in who I hold. Question. Who holds you today? Who holds us today? This little child was in the arms of Jesus. What a picture of greatness. He's not hardened. He's not unteachable. He's not independent. He's not found his own way and he don't need God. But Jesus is literally holding this child in his arms. And so often we live life saying God cannot care for me. And we're like the child that says put me down, put me down, let me run. 
Let me go my way. Let me do my own thing. Have you received him? Have you received him for salvation? Have you received him for security in your life? Are you serving for him this morning? Who's the greatest? And the greatest is. Starts with conversion. And it ends with the one who's willing to serve. And be the least. Oh God convicts my heart of this matter. And I understand how far I have got to go. And how much more work I need to allow God to work in and through me. And God convicts me. I'm not looking and we should not look as Christians to be the greatest. But can I just say God rewards the servant's heart. God rewards the one that will say it's not about me. But it's all about him. His name is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to live for him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to raise my family to honor him. Because I want God to be the greatest in my heart and in my life. If you need to be saved today, I have to begin with conversion. If you're not saved, I encourage you to come. Trust him as your personal Lord and Savior. God's put his finger on a specific area. I trust you, encourage you to come. Bow on this old-fashioned altar and ask God to do a work. Maybe a work of repentance. I don't know what God's doing in your heart, but I invite you to respond to Him. Who's the greatest? Christ is. Is He greatest in your heart this morning? Let's bow in a word of prayer.